Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Slice of Healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Taylor. Very excited about today's guest, Dr. Richard Novak, a Stanford physician, board certified in anesthesiology and internal medicine. Dr. Novak has a long list of other roles as well, and he is the owner of theanesthesiaconsultant.com, which has a lot of great content on anesthesia. Very excited. So without further ado, let's get him on. Hi, Dr. Novak. Greetings. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Uh, I wanted to start, uh, if it'd be okay with you, uh, giving the audience a little bit about your background, and then we can kind of start talking about why you chose anesthesia, and we'll go into some other subjects. Sure. Right now, I practice anesthesia on a daily basis, but my background is I started as an internal medicine doctor at Stanford, and after being exposed to anesthesia specialists in the intensive care units at Stanford, I followed my training by doing a second residency in anesthesiology. In between the two, I was an emergency room attending at Stanford. So I've had backgrounds in all those fields. Right now, I, I practice um, operating room anesthesia. I'm also a medical director at a surgery center, and at, at Stanford, the Anesthesia department is actually called the Department of Anesthesiology, Perioperative, and Pain Medicine. So in our line of work, perioperative means you're doing medicine before, during, and after the time of operations. And that's what my clinical life is like. Interesting. Um, I want to ask uh, the, the big question, how do you manage all of that? That's, that's a pretty big plate. And I know you have um, your blog, theanesthesiaconsultant.com as well. How do you, how do you manage to, to write articles? and do all those different roles. Yeah, I don't sleep much. <laughs> has, uh, has it always yeah. been that way? Uh, pretty much. I, I also have three sons, and what I try to impress upon them is it's, uh, it's good to be ambitious. I, 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 uh, if there's a normal curve, I never want to be in the middle of the curve. I always want to push myself to do as much as I can. Um, so that would be my answer to your question. Interesting. Now, I so... And I know you're also you're also um, an avid golfer as well, correct? Um, yeah, I play golf when I can. Um, certain times a year when we have club championships, I play every day for a period of time, and then the rest of the year I won't play very much because of my uh, uh, professional duties and my parenting duties. Um, but yes, which of your roles would you say takes up most of your time right now? Uh, no question that the, my job does. I, I get up early every morning. I get to either the hospital or surgery center about seven in the morning. And um, I'm in an operating room off and on during the day. Our style of practice here in California is the physicians still give the anesthesia ourselves. Uh, even though I work at Stanford Hospital, I am a uh, full-time clinician as I'm not supervising the residents at Stanford and I'm not supervising nurse anesthetists. So it's another thing that's unique about my background. I've been doing anesthesia for over 30 years, probably done 25,000 anesthetics and all 25,000 I've done myself. So unlike most um, academicians who have residents or someone else doing the clinical care, I've been working in an academic center, but I also do my own care on, on I'm in a private practice of anesthesia. So I'm an unusual hybrid in somebody who is like the um, community physicians who practice anesthesia around 
on cases, yet I work in an academic center, so I'm a bit like a professor and a bit like a private practice person. I have a, a faculty title at Stanford, which I've had since the 1980s. Um, currently, I'm, I'm an adjunct clinical associate professor. Interesting. What, uh, why'd you choose anesthesia? What was the, I mean, I know you went into a little bit, but could you elaborate a little bit on to what was the big thing that, that made you pursue that path versus the path that you were heading towards? That's a good question. The, um, the fields of medicine, there are some dividing lines. And one of the dividing lines is whether you are working in a clinic or whether you're working in acute care. And I went to medical school at the University of Chicago. They had an outstanding internal medicine department, and I thought that's what I wanted to do for a living. Uh, for an internship, I matched at Stanford, so I came here and began doing my internal medicine residency. What I found over the first two years is the majority of internal medicine uh, is practiced in a clinic. You're listening to people talk about the sort of chronic problems and symptoms and illnesses we all have. You know, people have aches and pains and they have high blood pressure and they have uh, uh, chest, chest discomfort or trouble breathing or more often they're mild things like they're dizzy or they're, they just don't feel very well. And it's, it's a slow moving specialty. It, it's the sort of thing that um, you build relationships over time. So the main asset and emphasis of internal medicine is that over time you just, you develop um, uh, an interaction with a patient, a relationship with a patient that they trust you and you know them and you learn what they need, whether it's uh, an oral medication or a referral to another specialist, but it's, it's, it's not acute care. On the flip side, acute care involves specialties like surgery and anesthesia and emergency medicine and intensive care medicine. Those specialties, there's a lot more adrenaline. Things happen, they happen quickly. Um, there are people's lives are at stake uh, minute to minute, second to second. And it's, it's, I found it to be less boring and, and quite stimulating. So I found myself leaving the, the clinic setting. And when I was exposed to intensive care units in, in the 1980s, the intensive care units at Stanford were run by the anesthesia department. And there's some outstanding role models. The professors that trained me um, the ones that stayed here are still professors. The ones that left went to medical centers all over the United States, top-notch, big-name academic centers, and became chair people there. So they were really fine role models, and um, I wanted to be like them. Interesting. And very interesting. You can t I can tell you're very passionate about it, too, obviously, to, to be in it for uh, the time that you've been in it. And to, to make that switch, obviously, you had to be passionate about it, and it, it comes across right away. Uh, I, I want to go into... For, for those, I, I gave a little plug in the beginning about it, but your, your blog, theanesthesiaconsultant.com, for the audience, for any of the audience that have not seen this blog, it's very interesting. There's a lot of articles that are innovative, and I, I really like it, especially I look at Slice of Healthcare and what we're trying to do and what you're trying to do in anesthesia. I can really admire it. What, what made you start that blog, that site? So about 15 years ago, I was um, elected to be the deputy chief of anesthesia at Stanford. And I, had, I served in that role for 15 years. It's a, it's a specific title, which meant I was the head of the private practice anesthesia practitioners at the university hospital. And there were a number of um, obligations that came with the role. One is every month we'd go to the medical executive committee at the hospital, which is really interesting. We'd meet with the, the dean was there, the chief of staff. 
the CEO of the hospital and all the department chairs. So I got to be in the midst of the uh, governing process of a, of a large prestigious university medical center. In addition, the job was um, ill-defined because there's a, there's a chairman, Ron Pearl is the chairman of anesthesia at Stanford. He's uh, a colleague of mine for the last 30 years. He's an MD, PhD, and he's a terrific uh, uh, role model as well. Um, the deputy chief didn't have any real governing uh, role, and we were mainly clinical. So I decided to write because I've always liked to write. So I began writing a column. Initially, it was once a month in the department newsletter. And the emphasis of the column was very specific because as I said earlier, I'm a, a private practitioner working in an academic medical center. I have um, viewpoints that differ from the professors because the professors, they teach with residents and they don't do their own cases. And the residents are working with professors and they're not doing the cases themselves either. But what happens the day you finish your training in anesthesia, you go out into what I would call the real world and you're on your own. And it's the most um, uh, anxiety-producing transition in the field of anesthesiology because in anesthesia, if you make an error and you lose a patient's airway and you are unable to keep the patient oxygenated, and within five minutes, you can kill them. And um, everybody knows that, and there's a lot of denial hoping that that, that will not happen. But it's important that you're well-prepared so that when those five minutes happen, and there's no faculty member at your right elbow to, to save you that you know what to do. So the initial articles that I wrote were clinical cases, what I would say, this and this and this happen, what, what do you do? And then the answer would come the next month. So um, this, they started with very simple things, like I would say, you have a patient who's on an anticoagulant, and um, you have a patient who's had a, a, a spinal anesthetic for uh, a total hip surgery. And the next two days later, they have a spinal headache, meaning that they have a severe headache and they can't get, they can't get a better move around, but they're also on an anticoagulant. And uh, what do you do? And the answer, which would come up the next month would be, <laughs> you do nothing until because they're on anticoagulant. The, the treatment for a spinal headache is to do a procedure on their back called a blood patch. But if you do a blood patch on a patient that has an anticoagulant, they could have a, a hemorrhage in their back and, and wind up um, paraplegic. So, there were things that uh, mostly there were there were clinical scenarios that I had seen either uh, colleagues in my practice suffer through, or I did a lot of years of what we call um, uh, quality assurance committee work or peer review work. Were it's fascinating you, whether it was at the university hospital or, or elsewhere in our practice, you would hear all the complications and um, look through the charts and see where the mistakes were made. The good news is you would then learn for yourself how not to make those mistakes. And the process of quality assurance or quality improvement in medicine is really to work not so much to chastise or punish those who made an error, but to inform and teach the next uh, generation of people not to make those errors. So that's what my columns were. And after a number of years, I had gotten up to about 60 columns and I was getting a lot of positive feedback from the residents, from the fellows, and the, and the attendings on the, on the full-time faculty. And I uh, started my own website. And you've had you have quite a good amount of content on it over uh, since you started. Yeah, I think there's, there's over 170 columns. Each one is in the ballpark of 1,000 words. So it's um, 
you know, it's uh, if it's 170 or 200,000 words, yes, that's several novels worth. And um, I write it all myself. I edit it all myself. And um, I'm proud of it. it uh, the readership crescendoed. I started the website in 2010. Uh, two years ago, I hit 1 million um, readers. And it's the pace right now is I have about one half million people per year looking at the website. Wow. And, and you, it looks, uh, I've been on the website. I've read a couple of your posts that you've had. You have a pretty diverse, I, I mean, obviously all anesthesia related, but it's pretty, there's a pretty wide range of content on there. There is, there are, broadly speaking, there are two different types of, of posts. Um, one of them is to inform lay people about what's going on in anesthesia. And the other is for anesthesia professionals, both MD anesthesiologists and nurse anesthetists, to try to improve um, the art and craft and science of what they do. So, for example, the top posts that get read on my website, the one that gets read the most every day is, is entitled, How Long Will It Take Me to Wake Up from General Anesthesia? And what it is, it's an essay and just how anesthesiologists put patients to sleep and how they wake them up, what's involved with um, making the anesthetic stop and how long it takes, what the time frame is for all those drugs and what patients should expect because patients have a lot of questions. Um, the second most popular essay that's read is, will I have a breathing tube down my throat during the surgery? And again, people have questions because they, they don't really know what they're getting into before surgery. And it varies. If you're going to have your gallbladder out, yes, you'll have a breathing tube. If your teenager is going to have their wisdom teeth out, no, they're not going to have a breathing tube. And people are interested. Um, I find that there are a lot of very bright people in the field of anesthesiology, there are not that many people who are interested in writing or speaking. It's um, a bit of a shadow specialty where the, the physicians are behind the scenes. I mean, if your clients are always unconscious, it's possible to have an existence where your clients never know anything about any anecdotes from friends, family, and readers that they're, they're anesthesiologists. They, they met them for 10 seconds before they went to sleep and they don't remember anything about them and they never saw them again. And then they got a bill. Uh, in many parts of the United States, a very acceptable model of anesthesia care is called the anesthesia care team. And in that model, one physician anesthesiologist will supervise a number of rooms, usually up to four rooms, each staffed by a certified registered nurse anesthetist. And this is an accepted model by the American Society of Anesthesiologists. We don't practice it very much in the Bay Area because we have a lot of MD anesthesiologists uh, who want to live in the Bay Area. But in that model, you'll have a nurse anesthetist who um, tells you a little bit about the anesthesia, hopefully gives you a, an explanation of what to expect. And then the anesthesia MD will come by and say hello and shake your hand and then walk away. So there isn't that much contact in some uh, models with the physician anesthesiologist. So I think people don't know that much about uh, the, the profession of anesthesiology, and they do have a lot of questions. And so that, that aspect of my website is to explain and enlighten the layperson. The other uh, set of uh, posts on my blog, which is about 60%, are aimed at the anesthesia professionals and how to do their craft at a higher level. Many of them, as I described earlier, are specific patient problems that are um, challenging and how one should handle that. 
and keep in mind, um, Jared, I'm, I'm just one individual. I believe I'm very well trained, but I'm, I am not um, a godlike authority in all things. So all my posts are a combination of what my experience and training has uh, shown me. And there's always references from the current world's literature. I've become very um, comfortable and willing to um, look up references on every topic. So the whatever I say is not, this is what Rick Novak thinks, because that doesn't really matter as much as what what does the world's literature and anesthesia say about this problem? You know, what are the treatments for postoperative nausea and vomiting? Uh, and uh, what do you do when the uh, the serum potassium level is uh, is three point nine? Should you cancel the surgery or not? What if the preoperative blood pressure is one hundred seventy over one hundred and two? Should you cancel the surgery or not? So that's a, a long answer to a short question. Yeah, it's. Uh... I believe it's been a few months back since um, since you and I first got in contact. But when I was first looking at your site, I believe I actually came across it by having an anesthesia question, which that's why I think there, there's not many sites like yours that actually there's really very few to none that explain um, the different things that are happening in anesthesia and some of the some of the layman terms that it basically uh, explains to the people that don't know anything about anesthesia and that are concerned when they go into surgery. So I, I thought that was really cool that you started this up and not that you just started it up, but that you've stayed active with it, which is obviously you see all these blogs, they die pretty quickly, many of them, and you've been mm -hmm. very consistent. So kudos to you. And thank you for, for keeping up with the content on that. Well, I want to, I want to talk about, cause this is uh, when, when people go onto your site, they scroll down a little bit. You also wrote a book, and this it, it was a, it's a fictional book, correct? That's correct. And uh, it's called "The Doctor and Mr. Dylan." What what made you write that? What's it about? Yeah, well, I've always enjoyed writing, and I uh, enjoy write, telling stories. The story of the Doctor and Mr. Dylan it's a it's a, a merge of two interests. One is is my uh, expertise in medicine, and the other is I grew up in a town named Hibbing, Minnesota, which was the hometown of Bob Dylan. And The Doctor and Mr. Dylan is a story of a murder that happens in that town. And um, two of the main suspects are uh, the doctor, who is the, the, the first person narrator of the book who stands trial for murder, and a nurse anesthetist whose name is Bobby Dylan, who is a psychotic individual who believes that he is the real Bob Dylan. And the book gives a lot of insights into... Uh, Bob Dylan's music and history, but more importantly, it's um, an examination of what happens when there's an anesthesia complication and um, an ensuing legal trial, and it's a mystery. And uh, where is it available for anyone that wants to take a look or purchase it? It's available it? to for anyone on, on Amazon, yes. Okay. All right. Anyone um, interested? It, it, it definitely sounds like an interesting story, and it just shows um, I, I want to say out to the audience, too, about this. If you ever think you're busy, look at what Dr. Novak's doing and don't think you're busy. There's there's a lot of time, and I'm sure you'll agree with that, that you can get a lot done outside of just your current job. You can explore other interests and still get done what you need to get done. I, I would like to also, so along with writing, you said that's one of the things that you love. What else do you like to do for fun? We, we know you like to play golf. Are there any other things that you like to try to include in, in your life? 
Well, I have three sons. They're 20, 18, and 12. And um, they all play tennis. So I try to, I can't beat any of them anymore, but I try to play tennis with them. Um, I take care of my, my yard and gardening because I like to be outside. Uh, I grew up in a snowbank in northern Minnesota, and now I live in a place that has green grass and palm trees year-round. So I like being outside. Um, and I like to read. Those are probably the main things. It's interesting. They all play. They, now all three of them play tennis. They do. I tried to, I tried to encourage them to become golfers. Uh, when they were youthful, I read Ty, Earl Woods wrote a book called how to train a tiger. And I read the book to try to see how you could make your kids into a young tiger Woods the second. <laughs> and it, uh, it, it failed three times, but uh, they're good kids. They're good tennis players in there. Well, you should be able to have a, some one, good doubles teams then, right? If there's three and then the you, yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. There you go. Uh, I, I want to wrap up with just a few more questions. And uh, this one is more from an advice standpoint, what would you, say to either anesthesia students that are currently in school or that for interested students that intend to one day become anesthesiologists or become a part of the anesthesia field? Yes. So the first line on my website is the profession of medicine offers a lifetime of fascination and no specialty is more fascinating than anesthesiology. And that's really how I feel about it. I, um, I thought about being a surgeon. I did become an internist. I worked in an emergency room. I worked with surgeons every day, pretty, pretty much other than being a, a psychiatrist or a, a pathologist. I see all the specialties uh, because anesthesia crosses through obstetrics and cardiac surgery and brain surgery and pediatric surgery. I've done all those things. Um, I think anesthesia is very interesting. It's a very popular specialty among metal, medical students. Uh, nowadays. In fact, is the field of medicine, you know, uh, college students going into medical school is still a very popular path uh, for a variety of reasons. Once within a medical school, when you have to make a, a choice, as I said, one of the first dividing lines is whether you want to be a clinic doctor or acute care doctor. Um, amongst the acute, acute care specialties, surgery is still pop, uh, popular and anesthesia is, is, is very popular. I recommend it for a number of reasons. I, it, um, it's interesting. Um, we do everything from newborns to 100-year-olds. Uh, we help deliver babies. We take care of cardiac uh, transplants and liver transplants and uh, every surgical specialty you can think of. So, so it, it's never boring. Um, there is a field, there's a phrase in anesthesia that is that anesthesia is 99% boredom and 1% panic. And I've always thought that was a fascinating statement, and it's, it's somewhat true. Um, ideally, you want your anesthesia to be boring because everybody is stable and everybody wakes up and goes home, and it's unremarkable. But no matter how good you are, 1% of the time, uh, there will be things that happen that are very scary, and you have to act quickly, and you have to have a high... Um, tolerance for um, anxiety and uh, uh, adrenaline rushes, and you have to know what to do. So anesthesia isn't for everyone. So my advice to people was, yes, it's a, it's a fine specialty because it's interesting. Um, people can make a very comfortable living, but it's not for everyone. Some people are best suited to sit in a clinic and listen. Others are ready to save someone's life within five minutes or, or, or not, and that, that isn't for everyone. Um, there are a number of fine specialty programs in anesthesia around the country. And if you uh, graduate from a, 
on American Medical School and and try to match within the specialty of anesthesia, you will probably have success um, getting a residency in an American program. Where do you see the anesthesia market in five years? That's another really interesting question. And there's a lot of posts on my blog and a lot of conversations on my blog about that because people want to know. You know they don't want to invest their future in something that's going the wrong direction. Um, there are some positive trends and some negative trends. On the positive trend, Americans are getting older. The baby boom that were born after World War II are now into their 60s and 70s, and they are requiring a lot of surgeries. So there's, there is an increased volume of surgery, which means you need more anesthesia professionals. Um, uh, the negative aspect are in, in a number of states in the United States, there is now... Uh, it's legal to have independent practice of anesthesia by certified nurse anesthetists. And it began with rural states such as Montana and the Dakotas, where they were not able to find MD anesthesiologists for every little town that had 18,000 people or 10,000 people. So the governors could opt out of the national requirement to have nurse anesthetists supervise. And uh, in this setting, nurse anesthetists can give the anesthetics by themselves. That uh, spread to California in the last decade. Uh, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger signed that into law in California about 10 years ago. Hasn't changed the practice of anesthesia as much in California as we feared. There are very few communities where nurses are giving the anesthesia by themselves. But that's one thing that that MD anesthesiologists are concerned about in the future, that they'll be phased out by nurses who are doing their profession for them. And it's a legitimate fear. I I don't have a crystal ball. I think that... Excellent yeah, physician anesthesiologists will always have work to do somewhere. Um, as with any economics, it's a supply and demand. If the supply of anesthesia providers grows and grows, then the reimbursement for them will decrease. And right now, the reimbursement for anesthesiologists is still uh, high uh, compared to other medical specialties. That data is available on my website and all over the internet and they can see what anesthesiologists typically earn. So I think it's a lucrative specialty, but it is, as I said earlier, it's stressful and it is, uh, it, you have to have a high capacity for functioning under uh, acute care adrenaline situations. Do you foresee uh, inpatient surgeries uh, becoming less and less and, and emphasizing more on like outpatient surgeries? Yes, without a doubt. I mean, in my practice, uh, I'm, a, I'm the majority of my practice is already outpatient surgery. And that's because over the decades that I've been an anesthesiologist, the improvement in anesthetics make people wake up more quickly. That helps. The improvement of monitors make us be able to take care of patients more safely. And the improvement in surgical techniques, uh, techniques such as laparoscopies and arthroscopies, make them minimally invasive surgeries to get the same job done. All these things add up to a trend where people don't need to stay overnight in a hospital. Um, decades ago, if you had your tonsils out, you'd stay in the hospital. In some places, they'd stay in the hospital for several nights. Now you have your tonsils out, and an hour and 15 minutes later, you're in your car somebody's driving you home. So, yes, there, is, there are definitely going to be more outpatient uh, surgeries and anesthetics done. Okay, I want to uh, end with one last question. I ask this to everyone that comes on the podcast, and we've had some pretty good feedback, but how do we innovate more within healthcare as a whole? Um, yes, that's a thought-provoking question. 
I think the main challenges in healthcare in the United States right now are the economic ones. It, if, if you look at the numbers every year, the percentage of the gross national product spent on healthcare gets higher and higher and higher. And it's a, it's a trend that um, has to be slowed or halted because the, it just, uh, it's not sustainable. I'm not sure how to do that. Um, the suggestions that they'll be able to somehow make um, a nationalized or um, uh, some sort of health insurance like they have in European countries where, they, where the government supplies it, I think will, it's unlikely to be successful in America for this reason. In, Americans, in America, people want um, special health care for themselves and the people that they love. They don't want to be told that their 78-year-old grandmother has to just die because now she's got heart failure or she's got a cancer. They want everything done. And to do everything costs money. And as, as I said, as the baby boomers get older, as the population gets older, and they inevitably get sick, uh, when we throw a lot of technology and expensive medications, surgeries, hospitalizations, intensive care unit care at them, it costs a lot of money. So that value within the American culture is going to be an expensive one to, to fund. So I don't know how to answer that. Uh, I've had this conversation with many physician colleagues over many years, and I'm not sure how to handle that, but I think is the main challenge in medicine. Um, every month we can pick up a journal and see that there's a new medication and there's a new procedure and there's a new device and it's all very exciting, but uh, I don't know who's going to be able to pay for it as the decades roll on. Interesting. Interesting. It'll be interesting uh, to see to see what happens with that. I mean, I wish I had an answer for that. Of course, <laughs> when you bring people on the on, on the show, you you want answers to questions. I, I uh, that's another conversation, but I think that is the main challenge. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's tough to give an exact answer for that. I, I mean, I I also I was talking with uh, another guest on on one of our recent podcasts, and we were just talking about from even an uh, idea perspective finding better ways and new ways to do things within the hospital healthcare professionals are at the heart of it it just be cognizant realize what what uh might there might be a better way to do something else and and jot it down and share it i think a lot of times when we have ideas just a common human trait is i need to keep this to myself i don't want anyone to steal it but when we're able to talk about our ideas we share them with others that's when they can really flourish um, i think that applies for any industry I agree. Well, Dr. Novak, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, how can people get in contact with you? Um, uh, check out your website. Is that, is that the best avenue? It is. The, the website is easy to find because the anesthesia consultant is not that hard to remember. On the website, there's my email address and my um, even my even my office phone number and my, my, I think my cell phone number might even be on there. I get I get contacts from people on a pretty regular basis from all walks of life. Um, and uh, I enjoy it. I find every medical new medical problem is like reading a new mystery book, which uh, is partly what inspired me to write one. But yeah, medicine's a fascinating profession. You're certainly, certainly a rarity. Uh, nice guy, super busy and, and can always find the time to, to do things like this. So I really appreciate it. And, uh, Look forward to, to hearing everything else that you continue to work on. And hopefully one day, um, maybe sometime this summer or in the next couple months, we can have you on again. Love to talk to you about some different topics. 
but thank you once again for coming on and, and we really appreciate it you're welcome Gary. all right you day. as well have a good one bye Wow, what a great episode. It was great having Dr. Novak on the podcast. Great content, great discussion. Everyone, be sure to check out his website, theanesthesiaconsultant.com. It, it's truly great, especially if you're into anesthesia. The content is for people that are into anesthesia and people that are looking to learn more about anesthesia. So it's definitely some great content. Please also be sure to follow us at Slice of Healthcare on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. For Twitter, we're at Slice of HC. And as always, please be sure to leave a review on iTunes in the podcast section. It helps us out. We appreciate your feedback. Thanks, everyone. We're very excited for the episodes that are coming up soon. Have a great day. podcast you just heard was recorded with anchor if you want to make your own download the android or ios app completely free from anchor.fm slash podcast that's anchor.fm slash podcast